Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. And we're in Joshua 6. Um, we, tonight is the night that we finally get to see Jericho go down. Uh, and so it's a huge chapter when it comes to one that's familiar to people. So it's a very familiar chapter. And it's the one that always does make it into Sunday school. So part of what we need to do tonight and when we go to the Word is to come to it kind of with an open heart. And I think that that's one of those things that we've all got images of the walls of Jericho in our head. And I want to try to root that more in reality tonight as to what was actually there and what we know. And luckily, we're getting to the point in history where there's tons of archaeology around this. And there is a Tel Jericho. It is one of the spots you can go see if you visit Israel. Um, but it is under Palestinian control right now. So it's not necessarily uh, um, being dug up or, uh, or excavated the way we think. There's only one Italian team there doing any kind of digging. So at various decades, there's only been one archaeology team at this huge tell. Um, so they pull it up bit by bit. So we'll get into that. It's Joshua 6, and this is, as I even started getting ready tonight, it struck me that we just did five chapters of establishing them crossing a river and the significance of what this looks like. And Jericho is kind of like moving on, but it's almost like the pinnacle of the story is somewhere in here, and I think in Joshua 6 we get here. By the end of the chapter, we see what the point of this whole story was. Um, but Jericho is five chapters of setup about a spiritual battle that's going to be won. And then remember at the end of the last chapter, the, the commander of the armies of the Lord shows up and says, I have given you Jericho. Like the battle was won last chapter. So this is just clean up an epilogue. But a lot of times when we approach this chapter, this is the big story, is Jericho's walls come down. It often gets used by pastors that don't use the Bible. So they'll be up on stage and they'll say, this is just like that big thing in your life that's like the walls of Jericho. And if you just pray hard enough or do something hard enough, that that wall will fall down for you. Just like, just like that. Um, but we've seen five chapters of setup. So these walls didn't just go down like that. Does that make sense? Like there's a lot that went into those walls just coming down. Um, we see Israel being consecrated. We see Israel keeping the Passover feast as part of the spiritual battle, like doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, we see the obedience and following God step by step. So they're told to step in the water, they step in the water. They're told to cross, they cross. They're told to make camp, they make camp. And those narratives of them just obeying God in the day-to-day -day life is a huge part of this story or this narrative. And of course, I like the, the thing is that Joshua always gets attacked because this is where God's people go and kill people. So for the first time in Joshua, we get to chapter six, they're actually going to kill people. So that happens, we're gonna deal with that again, but what we haven't seen in the first five chapters is any indication that the Israelites are xenophobic or battle-like ready and that they want to go out and slaughter people. We don't see any of that aplomb that we see like in the Greek myths or in the Babylonian myths. 
These are warriors that are not doing any of those things. So the work of preparation or the work of sanctification is a central part of this story prior to getting to Jericho. Prior to the strongholds falling, there's the preparation and the dutiful, what seems like an eternity of just sitting outside the city, not doing battle. And it's at that point God says, I've given it to you. Now you've won in the past tense. So we get, um, we get to chapter six. Imagine six is not there in your Bible. It's an, a really unfortunate place for a chapter divider. Because if you remember, he's talking to the armies of the Lord in, in chapter five, verse 14. And this is still part of that conversation. There's no indication of a break in the Hebrew. Uh, the breaks got put there much, much later. Joshua bows to this commander of the armies of the Lord, just like Abraham bows to that man who showed up at his tent back in Genesis 18. Remember that? The person doesn't refuse the worship, which we know from Revelation, angels of the Lord refuse worship. They don't accept it. So you've got this appearance of someone who's accepting the worship that should only be given to God. Um, That's a theological issue for some. But biblically speaking, we should have no issue with the idea that God can condescend into a human form and interact with humans. He did it with back in Genesis. He's doing it here with Joshua. Um, it is not the blinding radiance of an all-powerful God. It's just a person that they actually think they're dealing with a human when they first encounter them. Which is why when we get to the New Testament, for the Jewish people, they don't really, it doesn't strike them as odd or an issue that the God can be in the form of a man. It's not something that they have a huge issue with. They have an issue of Jesus being that person, but they don't have an issue with the idea of Messiah, right? So that's part of the training that we see in the Old Testament is accepting that. So the captain of the Lord's host says to Joshua, take off your shoes from your feet. The place where you stand is holy. The only being that makes things holy is God. Angels don't make things holy, but God makes things holy. So we have this idea that that Yeshua is talking to Yeshua. We just don't have the name of Yeshua yet. We have Jehovah. So Yeshua is talking to Jehovah, um, and we see that that's kind of going to be kind of this narrative that we pick up on in verse 1 now implies all of that storyline that we're still in it, right? And Mandy and Alyssa have been in it all week, so no problem picking up where we left off. Now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. This is a, verse 1 is a parentheses sentence. Because in the last sentence it says, see, I've given you the city, right? Or I'm sorry, in the next sentence it says that. So the parentheses there is that's what we're going to see in verse 2, is that Jericho's shut up, they've shut their gates, and they've closed up their city, which is what you do when you're getting ready for battle. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand, it's king and the mighty men of valor. Again, this is all in the past tense. But it makes you wonder why shutting the gates for battle is a sign of victory. That says that they're ready to do siege, that the people left in Jericho are the people ready to fight for Jericho. And they're going to do battle against this movement of God's people. So what's Joshua supposed to be seeing? Because in verse 2 it says, see, look at something. So what's he looking at? And if you know that Jericho's on full alert right now, getting ready for siege then he's going to be looking at something like this. And tonight, I brought visual aids. This is an artistic rendering based on Tell Jericho. I'm going to send out both of these first two right off the bat. 
So you can get a sense of what he's looking at across the planes. And it's not just like, look at the artist version. It's like, this is based on this actual, like, aerial shot of the city. So we know how big it is. We know what it looks like. We know that it's on a, like a hill and the plains of Jericho are all around it. Um, we know that this city would be massive. And even for a, a, a hundred thousand people in an army would still have troubles getting through these walls. Take a very small number of people to defend this city. And so take a look at those as, as they go around. We'll be talking about this. It says in verse one that it was securely shut up uh, in the Hebrew, when they add emphasis, they just put the word twice. So in the Hebrew, the shut word there is actually cigar, and they just use it twice. So the translation is securely shut up. What it really means is shut up, shut up, right? And before is the word panim, which we've seen all the way through the Bible, which means to get up into somebody's face in an aggressive way. So when someone stands before someone in that panim way, means they're ready to do battle with them. You know, like when somebody kind of leans into you aggressively. So it's that Jericho shut up, shut up aggressively in their face. So they're shutting those gates like, go ahead and try. Let's do battle. Um, so it's, a, it's an aggressive kind of thing that, that Joshua would be seeing when he looks at the city. He'd see those walls that are going around, and he would see that they shut up the gates, but they, they shut up in more than just shutting the doors of the gates. They're emotionally shut up or ready to do battle in that kind of way. So they don't want a conversation. The Jericho's people, there's no sign that they sent out an, an emissary or someone to talk. Um, and they have this idea that, the, that Jericho has been shut up or these people have shut themselves away from the people of God. It's the similar thing to when Jesus says to the Pharisees, uh, woe unto you, for you've shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. It's in their face. You've made it so people not only can't get into the kingdom of God, but you've put it in like a taunt in front of them. And that's the same idea that is what Jericho's going in here. They're, they're ready to fight. God's people just got done feasting and hanging out with their families, right? So very different temperament and mood. Um, I love the fact that I have given is in the perfect verb tense. It means past, present, and future. And right now we're reading about Jericho well into the future. But even when the commander of the army of the Lord says this to, to, to Joshua, he says it in the past tense, present tense, and future tense all at the same time. This is part of the history of the world that God has ordained. This city will fall. So God's battles are already won. That was something when Steph and I were talking about this week. It's just a thought she really likes too, is that when we get into battles and struggles, God already knows the outcome of those battles and struggles. And the outcome is something that he's planning for your good, either your spiritual well-being, your emotional well-being, or actually prospering you in a material way or a physical way. But God knows the outcome of the battle, and he knows that that outcome is ultimately for your good, for your training, for your ministry, and for your witness. So even when we go through hardships, it means other people's watching us go through hardships. And there's nothing better than seeing a godly person go through a trial. It's something that witnesses to everybody in their life is that's what it looks like when a godly person has to suffer or go through something. It's a tough thing to see, tough thing to go through, but God's already determined the outcome of it. He knows what it is. If they're shut to you or if you're dealing with other people that are like the Jerichoans and they've shut their doors to you, there's kind of a spiritual image here too. Have you met people like that where they really don't want to hear anything about the things of God? The door is just shut and it shall not be opened right? The way is shut to you. No one shall open it. You got that one, didn't you? 
Um, so that's what we're looking at here. The king, the mighty men of valor. It doesn't really imply that the people of the city are even still there. Do you see that in verse 2? The king and the mighty men of valor. It's like the people that are standing in your face or shutting up the city against you are kind of this remaining shock force of troops or Jericho's army that feels like a duty to stay there. Um, it implies then that, Josh, that Joshua shouldn't be intimidated by the mighty men of valor. These titles aren't that impressive to God and they shouldn't be to Joshua either. So sometimes when you're getting ready for this battle um, that God's already determined won, there's going to be people there that you think maybe are stronger than you. And that's something that God's kind of telling them to not worry about. And I like the idea that it only describes a soldier because by conservative estimates, that picture that went around is about 100 acres of city, which would house roughly about 2,000 people compared to the roughly 2 million people that are in the camp of Israel right now. Like this is a numerically an unsighted battle, but Jericho's still thinking they're going to fight this battle because walls are a tough thing for people to get up. These walls are made out of mud brick. Mud brick is climbable. And that's kind of the thing they want you to do if they're a defending force. Because you're looking at it thinking there are plenty of handholds in that mud brick. It's a rough surface kind of thing. If I start to climb the wall, though, you are a sitting duck for whatever they want to throw down or shoot down at you from the walls. So one person could hold off scores of people climbing the walls. So Jericho doesn't have a lot of people left in it. Most of the people have taken off. They had plenty of time to do it. So after being slaves in the wilderness, they now get to get to work and you'd think charge the city, go after them because you've got the distinct advantage in numbers and just go at those walls. But that is not what God commands them in verse three. I know that was a lot of setup. <laughs> you shall march around the city, all your men of war. You shall all go around the city once and this you shall do six days. So this is an odd command from God, right? But we know this story. I don't want to get too far into that. I do want to get into some of these things. How long would this march take? And being a group of hikers, you'd want to kind of get this. So if they are two miles from the city, and it roughly takes, if you walk at a nice easy pace because they're carrying the ark and they're wearing armor, let's say they can cover about two miles in an hour. So that's a pretty casual walk, right? If there's nine acres of city that they have to get, or 100 acres of city, but it's kind of... a linear route it would be about a one hour loop to get around that city if you keep yourself 200 yards out of arrows reach so draw your circum your circle outside of arrow shot and now you've got about a one hour loop so if it's two miles from gilgal to the city and the city's about a one hour loop it'd be about five miles walk or about two and a half hours in other words the work that God assigns them to conquer a mighty stronghold is about a two and a half hour workday. I found that really convincing or convicting for myself. How many hours per day do I give to what God's commanded me to do? And if I give eight hours a day just to put a roof over my head, then I got another eight hours left in a day. How much of that time does God get to claim in my day? He only asks for Sabbath one day a week, right? But if I'm thinking, if I want to do battle and I want to be in spiritual warfare, how many minutes a day am I giving to the Lord? And I just thought about that. And I thought, it's really gracious of a God 
to say to this nation, I only need you for two and a half hours. We can take on any battle this world has. I only need you for about two and a half hours to do, to do full-on combat in these situations. And then I started thinking about my, my pastor friends, Pastor Mike and the other folks that I know. How many hours per day are we expecting of our pastors to put into that battle on our behalf? And you see a lot of pastors nationwide that burn out. We just had another Hillsong pastor go down with infidelity and sin. And Satan can go after these people because they're exhausted doing the Lord's work. And the Lord just simply doesn't ask that much, right? Now, Paul, he's a whole, he's a machine. Apostle Paul, he's a whole other critter. But most of these disciples in the early church, they were working full-time jobs and then doing ministry at night and doing Bible study every night of the week. Right? But God doesn't ask that much of humans. And I just thought that was kind of stunning. So he asked them to go for about a two and a half hour walk, which my wife would love. She'd want to join in. Oh, it's sunny out. Can I come with on that walk? So verse four, and seven priests shall bear the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. Do you get a theme with this verse? And the priests shall blow the trumpets. So one hour to the city, one hour to get there. If they're doing then seven loops on that day, um, you don't have to do the back and forth from Gilgal, so it's about an eight-hour workday. Even on the seventh day, that's about what they're putting in as a full eight hours for the Lord, which is on the seventh day, which would be a Sabbath day. It almost looks like a work schedule for people trying to do kingdom work. Two and a half hours a day, and then on the seventh day, you're going to do a full eight-hour day. Um, and that's what's going to be the first major conquest of God's people in the Holy Land. Trumpets are yobal. It's the same word for jubilee. I thought that was cool. The trumpets that they're blowing here are the trumpets of freedom and jubilee and liberty, and we're going to just let every the oppression go, and they're going to blow those trumpets, those yobal. They're kind of like trumpets. The number seven, which comes up four times just in that verse, means perfect or complete in the Hebrew. So they are perfect priests blowing perfect trumpets, but on the perfect day you shall march around the city complete or perfect times so it's the same word in the hebrew it's kind of their numerology or how they do things but it's literally the same word that they would utter in that verse so god could have done all of this work in a moment why did he make a march six days and then six six seven times on the seventh day why not just knock the walls down and you wonder why God operates the way he does, but we see a principle that we've seen in the Bible all the way through. God would rather do all of world history to capture the hearts of humans. All of this is about working with the Israelites, not just doing it for them. So by doing the walking and doing the marching and meeting God's expectations, doing what God's asked of them, they're partnering with God in a way that God can work on their hearts because this is all about that. So instead of just knocking the walls down, they do all this stuff. And it, sh and it shall come to pass, verse 5, this is still the commander of the Lord talking to Joshua. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Notice that it doesn't say that it will fall over. They have a word for that. That's not the word they chose to use. They said that it'll fall flat. But walls don't fall flat, do they? So that's a super weird word that for centuries Bible scholars wrestled with that. Why would you phrase it like that? 
and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. If a giant wall falls, you'd have to climb over the wall, right? And you're going to kind of stumble on all the blocks and, and rocks. So how do I just stand up straight while I go through when I'm trying to climb over that wall? And how do I do it where you go, where the, you go up straight before him, meaning there's nothing in the way of that person? They can just stand up straight and go straight in. So if it's on this great plain of Jericho and the wall just falls down, you would be going up and over the wall, and then you'd come down into the city. You wouldn't go up into the city. That verse is something that has been messy for a long time until the archaeology started to dig up the city. And then we found that, oh, it's not actually wrong. It's actually perfect. And we get into these kinds of things. So after 40 years of warning, Jericho is about to get judgment. They are, as a people, not set apart for the Lord. They're cousins of the Israelites. They know Yahweh, but they've rejected Yahweh. Their religious practices, we know the Canaanites had some really sick stuff going on in their temples. They're a corrupt and a kind of a, they're like orcs and goblins, right? They have some really nasty stuff going on with their worship. And this is part of what God's trying to remove from the land. They're about to get that. They've had plenty of warning. They had them sitting for Passover right outside the city. The river stopped. They got to see a miracle. So all of that waiting was so that the Jerichos that wanted to leave could, and thousands of them did at this period of history. This is the diaspora of the Canaanites. Most of them left. But few of them say, we're not leaving. We're going to stay and we're going to fight God's people. We don't care what promises God's made to those people because we don't care about God. And we're going to fight you because we hate your God. And so they're going to do that, and they've shut shut up their doors to make that fight. Verse 6, then Joshua calls the son of Nun called the priests. He has to call the priests yet because as of yet, the priests don't march into battle with the ark. This is new. And he said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let the priests bear the, se the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. So where Jericho is panim in the face of Israel, the trumpets are in the face of the ark of the Lord. So they're going to stand between the ark and the Jerichoans that are putting themselves up. Does that make sense? So if somebody's up in your grill and they get pushed out of the way by somebody else, that's kind of what that sentence is saying. The ram's horns will be before the ark of the Lord, not the Jerichoans. Joshua talks to the priests in verse 6, and then in verse 7, notice that he's talking to the people. So he turns to the people and he says, Proceed to march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. This is not your battle. You're going to bring God along for it. So you don't get to do the fighting. God's going to do the fighting. And the emphasis on the word ark in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, especially 9 and 10 and 11, it's ark, 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 ark. It's that thing that's going to represent God is really the thing with the verbs. It's going to move forward. It's going to go. The people of Israel just go along with it. And it looks just like our walk with Christ today. We just go along with what Jesus is doing. It's not like we have to come in with an agenda. In fact, coming in with the agenda is the very thing that God tells us to give that up. Let him do the leading in your life. Don't constantly try to be planning and, and orchestrating it. And then you can enjoy what's going on. So it's not that the ark is just their little good luck charm that they're bringing along. It's that they're following what God's doing and God is moving in the form of the ark. So God goes spiritually, the ark goes spiritually. God's done all the preparation for the people. He's got them ready. He puts them in position in verse 7. 
and the ark is central to this event, not the people of Israel. And I just want to point that out. It should be noted, <laughs> this is the point I like to make, this is not a military strategy in any way, shape, or form. Marching your most valuable possession in front of your enemy is not a military strategy. Marching at all is not a military. We march in parades after the battle. You don't march in parades in the battle. That's a really bad idea. And they don't know if they have catapults or ballista or ranged weapons that could possibly read. They're kind of guessing how far an arrow can shoot. Um, but they're really, this isn't a logical approach to storming a city. It's a, it's a horrible idea. And God's prepped them for this crazy idea. Because crossing a river wasn't crazy. They knew they had to cross a river, right? Doing Passover isn't crazy because their forefathers did it. It was setting up the new covenant. Like, then it got a little crazier. Um, if you're going to circumcise yourself right in, with an eye shot of your enemies, that's a little crazy. But they did it and the enemies didn't attack. So now when they're being told to do something that's a little crazier, something you can't even make up, right? They do it and they just follow along because they're used to God doing things in the small stuff and now they're ready for God to do things in the big stuff. So faith got them across the river, not logic. Faith got them into position, not their rationale. So faith is going to win the battle and get the, the walls torn down, not their planning and not their superior military force. Because God's chosen the foolish things of the world, you know this verse, to put to shame the wise. And God's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Not to mention the wall's got to fall flat here. Um, and, and, and Joshua doesn't mention the wall falling to the people of Israel. So they're following right now for no reason other than faith. Joshua told them to march, so they're going to march. They don't even know the wall's going to come down. And I just think it's kind of funny that Josh didn't share that with the people. So verse 8. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns before the Lord advanced and blew trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. There's no delay. They're just going to do it. Now the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. So this is the first mention that something went in front of the Ark. The armed men go in front, then the trumpets, then the Ark. The rear guard came after the Ark while the priests continued to blow the trumpets. Everything's circulating around the ark. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout. And then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around at once. It doesn't even say the people circle the city. We know they're in the procession, but it's the ark of the Lord that went around the city. If you want to take down your enemies and you're in spiritual battle, put the word of God out in front. Put the word of God at the middle of it. Let them argue with the Bible. Don't let them argue with you. The Bible says this. The Bible says that. The Bible says this. But you got to actually know the Bible in order to do that sort of thing. So I like this idea that Joshua is telling them to be quiet. This would then be creepy. There's a silent procession of 100,000 or so soldiers and these priests just walking around your city. It's obviously a religious affair. And the people in Jericho are seeing this as a religious thing. They're not just swarming us with their masses. They're coming out here and they're just peacefully walking around our city. It doesn't say siege or surround the city, which means as the procession goes back after two and a half hours, they got a whole day to take off. 
There's no siege going on of Jericho. And I think that's phenomenal. So day one, think about it. Do you really want to fight God's word? Day two, another day to think about it. Day three, more days to think about. It's like God's giving them six days of most of the day, no siege. They could just pack up their stuff and leave. Anybody left on day seven is either in Rahab's house, because remember, there's still even a sanctuary in that city they can stay at, or they're gone. They've taken off. No noise or no words is this idea of putting God on display and being sober and calm and relaxed about it. This is where I take issue with some of my Christian brothers and sisters. When we get loud and annoying, especially around politics, that is not putting God on display. It's a horrible way to proselytize and get angry about things that maybe we are angry about. But it's not the gracious way in which we put God out in front to do the battles. Because if we have a will when it comes to politics and we're trying to force that will, we're not putting God out in front. And it's a really tough dynamic. And I'm going to get some phone calls from people that might be listening to this. But let's have that discussion maybe afterwards about what that looks like. How do we put God on display? And in this particular passage of the Bible, it says shut up. Stop talking. Jericho shuts up, shuts up. The people of Israel are going to shut up. They're not going to talk either. So it's just a battle of people shutting up. Nobody wants to talk, then fine, we're just going to put the word of God out and we're going to parade the word of God because we love it. So we don't need to engage in combat to win battles. It's a major concept in the Bible and it's a massive part of Jesus's ministry. We don't have to fight people in order to win the spiritual war with people. We're trying to win them over. We're not trying to push them away. Remember when Joshua goes up to the commander of the army of the Lord and he says, are you with me or are you against me? And the commander just says, no. I represent, uh, uh, this is a different level we're at. I'm not, about, I'm not for and against people. I'm actually trying to get all those people to come to heaven. This marching in front of the city of Canaan is so that the Canaanites can come to a faith in Christ because there's no limit on who's in Rahab's house. She could pack the walls with people if they want to go run for sanctuary. So that idea of putting God's word in a golden box and carrying it around on our shoulders and just walking where God tells us to walk, there isn't even a single single signal coming from Israel that they want combat with the Canaanites. Not one indication. They're not swearing up at them. Now in VeggieTales... The little French peas are casting curses down on Israel, and Israel's talking to one another. Remember, the little vegetables are talking. That's not biblical. Not a word is spoken. Not a shout or any noise with your voice. No talking. They're just supposed to take the abuse. Preparation for Israel has been a time of warning for Jericho. For every moment of preparation for the Israelites, it's a moment of trying to get the Jerichoans, Canaanites, to come around. I imagine they're going back to their home and they've heard, we know from Rahab that they'd heard about the Red Sea. Remember, we've heard about the Red Sea, but look, we can actually see with our own eyes the Jordan River. They'd heard about Balaam trying to curse them and then not being able to, and now they can see how Israel's being blessed with Passover. For the, with their own eyes. They've heard about the mighty Egyptian army. 
But then they got to see Og and Bashan, their cousins, get defeated in battle. So these Canaanites have seen it all. Now they've heard about the Ark of the Covenant, but now they get to see it right in front of their building. It's one thing to hear about Christians and who Christians are. It's another thing to see Christians and see what they're doing. And, of course, the Ark of the Covenant is Egyptian gold. Let's not forget where that gold came from. They're marching it in front of Canaan. Remember that awesome Egyptian army that was all-powerful and mighty that now just went back into the Dark Ages because they have no military left? That's their gold marching around your city right now. And I just like that image. So 40 years plus a week or so puts God on display. And then we get to verse 12. And Joshua rose early in the morning. That's the second time we've seen Joshua get up early in the morning. I love the fact that he gets up early in the morning. It shows an enthusiasm for what's about to happen. So Joshua rises early in the morning, and the priests who took up the Ark of the Lord, and in this verse, it's not just Joshua getting up early in the morning. It's the priests, too. You see the multiplying effect? God's commanding Joshua, and the leadership's having an impact on people. So it's the second time we see it, only this time there's people doing it with Joshua. The tone here in the Hebrew is that they are excited about what's happening. It's like when you wake up on your birthday or you wake up on Christmas morning. They know something cool is about to happen. Verse 13, the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with trumpets. The armed men went before them, but the rear guard came up after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to camp. And so they did this six days. Each day it's going to take more and more courage for Jericho to just stay in that city. When they march around the city, let's flip back to the Israelites, there had to be more and more faith each day because what if the Canaanites are planning a strategy for today? So when you get up on day three and you've just done the same thing two days in a row, you've got to be thinking, what if Canaan set traps over the night? What if they put a bunch of spike pits out where we walk? What if, what if, what if? And that's where fear comes from. Fear is always imagining something will happen that you don't like. But it's not a reality, right? So there's this six days of being intimidated, being yelled at. Hopefully the trumpets would do that coming out. And then at that picture that I passed around, notice that there were two tiers of walls. Visually, if you're at the bottom of that, you don't see the gap between them. You just see wall, and then you see more wall. And the visual effect of these walls, the archaeologists tell us, is that it would look like it's 42 feet above you, even though it's set back a little bit, or the equivalent of a 10-story building. So that's why they're the mighty walls of Jericho. Imagine having to storm a 10-story building and trying to climb that and get there. So think about that while you walk two and a half hours a day in sandals, and your feet get, they're probably tough, so they don't get a lot of blisters, but... You know, they're doing that. On that last day, it's eight hours. They don't quite know what's going to happen, but they know it's the last day. The only thing that they need to worry about is God, um, but there had to be the temptation to be worried about what's going on inside that city and what the Canaanites are doing. They don't even know how many people are left in the city. We only know that in retrospect because we see from archaeology what happened inside the city, which we'll get to in a bit. Verse 15, it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early. Now they implies all the people of Israel were up on this day altogether. See how leadership works? If I do it, other people may do it. They say the way you recognize a leader is if you turn around and somebody's following. 
And Joshua is just doing what God tells him to do. And next thing you know, there's people there. So I love the idea that Joshua's leadership is rubbing, rubbing off and it's not because of Joshua's force of will. It's just out of his obedience to the Lord. Joshua talks to God. He knows the word. He points the way and people start to follow him. This is the opposite, by the way, of fear, intimidation, and, and worry. If you're fearful, intimidated, and worried, you don't look to holy leaders to guide you. You look to yourself, and that's the problem. You're looking at yourself more than you should be looking at other people or at the Lord. So they rise early. What's going to happen next? We're ready to get to work, and I love verse 15 because now we see the nation doing the same thing. Verse 15, it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, it says it again, about the dawning of the day. And they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And only, only that day, they, on that day only, they marched around the city seven times. It's a long day of walking. We did the park for, what, four hours, five hours? I was sore for three days after that. Michael wasn't, but, I, you know. This, these are people that, that's a long walk after there. And it's seasonally warm. And this is the spring season in Israel. It's hot. It's sunny. They don't have little shaders. They don't have misters. They don't have air conditioning units. Uh, this is a long eight-hour walk, probably dehydrated. Again, horrible battle strategy. Let's walk for eight hours before we're going to fight with people that get to sit inside stone mud brick houses, relax, take shifts on the wall. They're battle ready, but Israel's exhausted after eight hours of walking. Even if you're a hardened hiker, that's still going to be something where you're tired, you're ready to go to bed. And remember, some of, all of these men are still walking a little bow-legged. You know what I'm saying? Eight-hour hike after that, this is not getting them ready for a battle. So whatever they think is coming, remember Joshua didn't tell them the walls were going to fall down? They're probably getting exhausted spiritually too. Like, is this even going to happen? What's the plan here, Joshua? So before battle, they're helpless. They're completely exhausted, and they're probably wondering what's going to happen next. God always takes us to that point. If it's a test of faith in our life, God always takes us to that point because he wants to see what we're going to do. How long can we hold out? And you get the whole book of Job kind of seeing what God's going to do to test people. So verse 16, And the seventh time it happened, the priest blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout! for the Lord has given you the city. So shout for the Lord is where we get the song from. Uh, it doesn't say shout at the Jerichoans. And it doesn't say to shout over at them. And it doesn't say to shout, it says to shout for the Lord. So what they're shouting is not finally yelling back curses at the Canaanites. What they're shouting is praise and adulation for God Almighty. So they're singing praise songs right in front of them. The joy of the Lord is their strength, Nehemiah 8.10. So again, it says here, notice that Joshua uses the Lord's language. So again, a leadership thing. The Lord told Joshua that he had given them the city. Joshua reflects the same language in verse 16. Shout for the Lord has given you the city. He's saying that at a moment where probably not one soldier or priest left thinks that they've won a battle. The walls are still standing and they're exhausted. And, he, and Joshua just says to yell. And you'd think they'd kind of be like, yay, but they don't. The indication here is they are ready to go with God's word because 
when it says, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, they're actually anticipating what God's going to do because they shout and they shout loudly. And there is a, 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 a cheer that goes up. I'm imagining even the Israelites back at Gilgal can heal, hear this scream two miles away. And maybe even back in the camp in Israel, they start yelling too. And they're ready to go. So this resonance happens between this two-mile distance in a valley area with a mountain right, or a, like a hill right in the middle of it. They, in obeying at this moment, this idea that they're exhausted, yet they still shout and yell, I think this is the moment they win the battle. As we've had this whole narrative for five chapters, and I pointed this out, it's all been spiritual preparation. So God asks them to do something completely ridiculous, gives them no indication of miracle whatsoever, and says, shout to the Lord, and they do it. They give praise to the Lord right in the middle of their, their battle. I know there's a song that's like, that's how I fight my battles, right? You guys know what song I'm talking about? All right. But that idea is like shouting praise to the Lord is how they do battle and how they do it right in the middle of the situation. When the disciples are thrown in jail, what do they do in the jail cell? They start singing praise songs and the bars break. This is the kind of place they're getting that training from. When it looks really bad, sing praise to the Lord and he'll honor you in that. Shout to the Lord, I've given you, before the Lord has given you the city, now the city shall be doomed to the Lord and the destruction to those who are in it. The city shall be doomed. I just like the word doomed, so I looked it up. It's karim, and it means, and then I then it was kind of like, oh, this is really interesting. It actually doesn't mean doom like we mean doom. It is not like the legion of doom. It means netted, or to use something that's perforated to catch something and gather it up. In other words, a doom, again, you got to detach from the English meaning of this word. It's a, it's in a noun form. It's a thing that's used by fishermen or fowlers to catch things you don't want to kill. So when it says the city shall be netted, we're going to capture this city. We're going to gather it. We're going to bring the people that we want in. The point of the perforation was that things could get out that needed to get out. And the things that were going to come into the kingdom could come into the kingdom. It's a really interesting image right at the edge of Jericho, right? So here's God netting them to destruction. So you can net things for salvation and you can net things for destruction. If I catch fish in my net that I'm going to eat, they are doomed, right? They're caught. They can't get away from it. So in the city of Jericho, it says the city shall be doomed, yet there's people in the city that will be saved. They're going to get out of that net. And there's people in that city, they're going to be caught in that net. So they're both doomed. Does that make sense? So it's not an inaccurate thing in 17 when it says the city shall be doomed. Because Rahab and her household, they're doomed to salvation. They've been netted. And the other people that want to fight against God's law and God's people, they're doomed because they are going to be killed. And they're going to be caught in that way. So this idea that we too in Mark 1 and Matthew 4 says we're to be fishers of men, we're supposed to do the same thing. The world is doomed and they're either going to be saved or they're going to be destroyed. And that's the situation we got. All right?
Only Rahab the harlot should live, verse 17, she and all who are with her in her house because she hid the messengers we sent. So Joshua is very careful to remind people that are about ready to do battle that there are people they won't kill. All who are with her, it doesn't just say her family, though that's the promise the people made, bring your family in. It says all who are with her. That's more graceful than what was promised to Rahab. So God likewise gives more grace than what's expected. The soldiers are, aren't supposed to make a distinction and there's no instruction. It's whoever's in her house gets saved, period. Because if they ran to Rahab's house, they're going there because they trust the Lord more than these walls that are about to come down. This is a significant verse. It means that the instruction from the general to the soldiers is not to just wantonly slaughter people. There's control for these soldiers. Throughout history, soldiers in battle do horrible things. Israel's soldiers are given a mark of restraint that they're supposed to follow. And if they don't, they'll be executed versus the people they're supposed to execute. So the only one in this whole city, another thing to think about, the only person in this city that God's going to save is a prostitute, which tells you the moral level of this city. The one worth saving is the prostitute, which makes you wonder what else is happening in this city and what, what's there. It's not that God's mean and cruel. It's that these people have resisted the call, the ample time to get away, the warning. They've not gone to the safe house that God provided, and they're not going to follow the rule of God. They don't belong in the land anymore. And God's putting down a deviant, nasty group of people that are defiant and they're against the fishing net of God. And this is the same doom that's promised the world. People we love and care about are doomed either to salvation or to destruction. And that's the message that's been consistent through the Bible and it will be consistent in the New Testament. It's like this. If you have little kids and they play in the backyard and your dog gets bit by a a skunk and it starts to foam at the mouth and then it starts to growl at your five-year-old in the backyard what do you do with the dog and throughout history it's an obvious decision the dog either needs to go to the vet and get the rabies taken care of or you kill the dog because if you leave the dog in the promised land the dog will bite because it's defective there's a corruption and a sickness there so this is one of those things that the God doesn't wrestle with the fact that people are about to die because it, it's recognizing that spiritual condition that they're in. Verse 8, you by all means abstain from the accursed things. So it's not even talking about the people in the city. Save Rahab, stay away from these idols these people have, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. It's three, it's a complete accursedment on this city. See how it's used three times? And make this camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. If you mess with this weird stuff they've got, their graphic images of murder and death, their pornographic idols, if you mess with this stuff, it's going to taint you and it'll affect you. Don't do that. Verse 19. But of all the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron, they're consecrated to the Lord. We're going to set those apart for God. Because with metal, you can melt it down and reshape it and remold it. So they came into the treasury of the Lord. This is a reference to these deprived religious items they have. These are religions that have grown since they rejected the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's a victory that's going to be moving them out of the way. So the destruction of Jericho in verses 18 and 19 has nothing to do with the human beings. 
It has everything to do with the idols that they have to destroy in that city. They're going to clean this place out. They're going to get the mold out of the house. They're going to get rid of these occultic images and these occultic worship practices. They're going to burn those books because they don't belong in God's kingdom. It has and it always will be a spiritual war. And in here it's a very spiritual approach. Consecrated to the Lord has holy and religious significance. This is a religious battle that's happening in front of here. This isn't xenophobic kind of battle. So in verse 20, the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, complete obedience, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, and the people went up into the city, just like God promised. Every man straight before him, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Anything that wasn't in Rahab's house is going to go down. So they shouted with a great shout. <laughs> this really gets Bible haters worked up in a tizzy. And I don't know how many of you have had these discussions with people. But this idea that they shout and then they charge the city. To me, it's like watching the movie Braveheart, right? It's what people do, right? They're, the victory's already been won. They're just shouting their kind of battle thing. But Richard Dawkins says this about the book of Joshua. And I promised you I'd find this quote for you. It's even better than I remembered it. A text remarkable for the blood... Actually, I should read it like Richard Dawkins. It's a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. This is not xenophobic relish. This is a bunch of hobbits realizing they just won. And they're going up into the city. This is hobbits versus Canaanites. And it's not... There's So the Pentateuch clearly shows that Israel has been hesitant for 40 years. They were terrified of the Canaanites 40 years ago. They didn't even want to go into the territory. And then they've gone on to show again and again how the Israelites had to die in the wilderness because they didn't want to fight. This is not a xenophobic people, right? The Bible actually claims that God commanded them to do it despite their fear, Numbers 13. They were terrified. They weren't bloodthirsty. It's like this guy didn't even read the book. And how do you even argue with that? Because he says it was such intelligence and aplomb, like he knows something, and he doesn't know anything. He didn't read it. So how do you even have that discussion with somebody like this? How do you even say that? He says it's just a myth. This isn't myth writing. This is a detailed historical account by somebody trying to accurately represent it as we saw when they crossed the river and we got commentary on every step of the process. The point of this writer is total accuracy to record something that was amazing. It's not just myth writing. You want to read myth writing, read the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's clearly myth. It's written as fantasy, right? Or the, the uh, um, what's the Norwegian one? Oh my goodness, it's to Beowulf. Total fantasy. Um, so far, bloodthirsty. I just want to go through the bloodthirsty strategies of the Israelites really quick. So far, it includes God giving the enemy every single advantage before the battle. It includes a God who commands them to leave ample time to head out and leave. It includes a God who provides a safe house inside the city for anybody that wants to be saved. The xenophobic relish that's here is a people that are being told to be strong and courageous because they're not. That's the xenophobic bloodthirsty stuff. And you're like, oh my goodness. Joshua, Joshua, Joshua's heroism 
isn't that he took a sword and beat the Hydra monster. His heroism is that he marched around a city and shouted praise to the Lord. His heroism is in subservience to a God that is a character in this Bible. The great shout is not a war, t- war cry of attack. It actually implies praise or worship like they're singing really loud. So it undermines this idea, this attack on the book of Joshua, and you look at this first battle and you just don't see it. I don't, at least when I'm reading it. I see five chapters of hobbits with more preference to feast and eat than to battle and fight, right? So they utterly destroy all that's in the city. Again, the word destroy in the Hebrew means to exterminate, prohibit, and ban. It has a spiritual significance to it. It implies that they're cleaning out all the nonsense. It's like when a parent finally gets sick of what their kid's doing in the deep, dark basement, and they clean the crap out and get rid of the cockroaches. It's an exterminator coming through. The word destroy there is targeting the city. They're destroying all that was in the city, not who was in the city. They destroy all that was in the city. And anybody that tried to fight them gets killed as they do this. Don't take my idol and destroy it. And they killed them with the sword. Donkeys and oxes, because they don't want any living thing from this thing, in part because of the diseases that we know were part of the animal and human population here, implying that there were some things going on between animals and humans. So they don't want those diseases coming back to their herds. There's practical reasons for this. So when critics go after this, they're either showing a stunning ignorance for the book, a shocking ignorance for what's here, like they didn't even look up the words, and a a part-timer like me can figure this stuff out, or they're willfully misreading and deceiving with the intent of their words about this book. And that, to me, is more disturbing. I'd rather be dealing with ignorant people that just don't know. What's sad is when people do this from higher ed positions or positions of authority, and they do it with 18-year-old kids in their classrooms, it's sickness that's going through our society right now. And they're taking people that can't defend themselves, and they're coming at it like Richard Dawkins does. And then you got generations of people just repeating nonsense, like people just got slaughtered in the Old Testament. No, they really didn't. And that's not what we read here. There are moments where people get killed, but this isn't one of them. And we keep looking for them for two years now. We're just going to go through the whole Old Testament and we're going to consistently see a God that says you're either for God or you're in opposition to God. And if you're in opposition to God, there are times when God's going to move you out of that territory. The Canaanites are dispersed because they're in opposition to God and he's trying to set up one little sliver of land on this planet where God's people can just be God's people and they can live their lives the way God's told them to. So we're going to see the same thing in the New Testament when they start talking about rules for the church. The church is the place where God's people get to have a set-aside place. And if you got somebody coming into that space and they're just destroying it, the shepherd's supposed to get the wolf out. And it's not a hateful, mean thing. It's saying, let us just have our hobbit-like festivals without you trying to ruin it. We don't need that here. We want peace here and joy. All right, I, I'm getting an arguing tone because I've met these people. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. but and, I, and if you have too, I hope that's encouraging. Logically, if I want to prohibit evil, if I want to stop evil in the world, like the Bible just taught me to, here's what I've learned from this chapter. Not what Richard Dawkins says I should have learned, but here's what I've learned. I've learned that I wait on the Lord. 
I've learned that when the Lord tells me to step in the river, I just do it. And I see what the Lord's going to do. I've learned that I'm going to put my treasure, the word of God, out in front everywhere I go. That's what I've learned. I've learned to build memorials to remember when God does something awesome and to take time as a people of God to remember what God's doing in our life. I've learned to consecrate myself before the Lord. Spiritually, you know, the Israelites did it physically, but I'm going to consecrate myself before my Lord and set myself aside for the Lord. I've learned to eat feasts even in the presence of my enemies, just like the Psalms tell me to do, right? I've learned to hang out with my family, and Jesus tells me my family are my brothers and sisters that are serving the Lord just like I am. So far, I've learned not to prepare for a fight that I see or do anything that makes sense in that situation, not to do combat. I've learned to not shout and keep my mouth shut. I've learned not to display my own power and, you know, because that'd be my temptation, marching around walls. Oh, you just wait till day seven. I've learned to hold that back and show restraint. I've learned to, even when I'm invading the enemy's camp, to be looking around for those things that are precious and to save them to set aside for God. And I'm desperate. I'm not going to touch the people of God that are in that space. And if I don't know who those people are, I got to be really careful when I go in there. I've also learned from this chapter that I want to take daily walks with God, maybe about two and a half hours a day. But that's healthy if I'm if I feel like I'm in spiritual battle. You know, if you get into it, God gets that. Spend a little more time with God. If things are tough, spend a little more time with God. If you're in rough shape, if you're beat up, if things are tiring for you, spend a little more time with God. Get into his word and study it. So these are things, when I read through this, I learned go home, eat, pray, sing, love my family, obey, and shout praise to the Lord. That's what I've seen the people of God do in this chapter. That is not a book teaching me to go attack and commit genocide. It's a book telling me very different things. So I guess it depends on how you come at this book. So I'll take this approach to the Bible that I actually read versus the one that humans tell me I should take when I come here. Verse 21, they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man, woman, young, old, ox, sheep, donkey, with the edge of the sword. So this sounds really harsh because it is harsh. After all that, this is the harsh ending for those things that set themselves up against God. If people don't like the doom part of the Bible, they have to just accept that it's still there. There is a doom part of the Bible. That should give us urgency to go find Rahab. Right? And if Rahab's like our family, our friends, people we know from high school, people we're going to hang out with, we should be desperate to get them into that house and into a place of salvation. When it says by the sword, here's another thought, that does not mean brutality or torture. It means a very quick and efficient death. It is the fastest death that they can deliver at this period of history. They don't have guillotines yet. So when you die by the sword, it means it's, a, it's, a, it's an execution. It is not torture. And a lot of times in war, you see soldiers that are sick with sin. They will torture and maim and rape people. It is horrible what happens in war. We don't see the Israelites doing that. They execute. They don't murder. And it's a very different kind of approach or the word that's there. And and, and even the indication of the edge of the sword means it happens quick. It's how you execute animals before you sacrifice them. It's the same word. So you don't make the sheep feel pain. You kill them quickly. And you, you end it quickly. Why? Um, Because they chose to fight and defy God, and they're going to find that there is an end to that that's not okay. It is harsh. Deuteronomy 18 explained this to them books ago. 
when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, which is right now in Joshua chapter 6, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. That was abortion back in that day. Or anyone who practices witchcraft, occult practices, or soothsayers, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up from the dead. If you want to go back and get all of those, we picked those apart back when we were in that chapter. Do you remember when we picked those apart? Um, he's basically saying anything that has to do with humans thinking they have power, some sort of spiritual power. For all those who do these things are an abomination to the Lord because of these abominations to the Lord, your God drives them out before you. It's the same word. He herds them away. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you will dispossess. Listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God is not appointed such for you. These people are being driven out. And God is the one that's going to do that. And those that choose to stay are going to get killed because God couldn't drive them out with all the methods he tried to get them out of there. Run or die is kind of the choice they get. So there are unite times in history where God commands judgment. Adam and Eve, he judged his own people. He judged the entire world except for Noah. Okay. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah because he didn't want that corruption affecting his people at an early stage. He judged Egypt. And now we're at the fifth major judgment of God, which is he's judging Canaan. And he's going to move forward and progressively work through the whole nation and judge them all. So at this point, sin becomes acceptable. God's had enough. It's like <laughs> some days I had come down on a Saturday and realized the kids' rooms were just a terrible mess. And this is like, Dad, just I've had enough. And what happens then at those moments is like, kids, it's time to clean your rooms. And if the rooms don't get cleaned... I will help you clean them. And for some reason, the kids never wanted me to help them clean their rooms. Or when they left their stuff out, like in the public areas, um, they don't do that anymore because we came up with the rule of the high, high shelf. If you leave your junk out here and it's bedtime and you've gone to bed and we find your toys out here, they go onto a high, high shelf. And I don't know why it wasn't a high shelf. It was a high, high shelf. So it was high even for us. And then the kids could look at their toys for one week before they got them back. But there is a moment where as a father, you say enough, we're done with this nonsense. And the idol worship, God's just gotten to that point with Canaan. Enough of the idol worship. I'm bringing in my people. This is going to be their territory. So we're right there. So, all right. Then we get to get into the archaeology, which I promised. This stuff's really fun. Uh, there are some interesting elements of this story that are confirmed in archaeology. Uh, God left a testimony in the dirt. And that dirt's been there for 4,000 years, 4,500 years. And we're digging that dirt up. And we have over the last 100 years been digging it up. Let's deal with a few of them. The wall fell down flat and they went up into the city. I've mentioned those things as we went. For years, this was considered a linguistic error, but they kept it to be true to the original Hebrew. They kept those words there. But they were thought to be a problem in the Bible and even Christians thought there was an error here. This is one of those things that comes out, and I love these kinds of things. So then we dug up the city, and we found out, actually, the wall had, at that time, end of Iron Age, early Bronze Age, the double wall was a huge technological development. This was a, a, a thing that gave a perception of height without having to actually create architecturally engineering that height. 
So the double wall was uh, positioned for them to fortify. The cheap housing was out on the outer wall. So human beings actually became the buffer for the rich people living up in the top because you had to get through those houses and over those things. So you'd get up over the first wall and you'd kind of come into a housing area where people lived. So again, just a horrible situation if you're an invader. And the city then is not behind the wall, it's above the wall. You would go up into the city. So, and I hope the picture helped with that. And I'll send out two more pictures because these are, this is the original Kenyan thing, the first one. Uh, John Garstang went out in the 1930s and then Kathleen Kenyon went out in the 1915s. This is her original drawing when they started to dig up the dirt of the kinds of dirt types they found. And interestingly, it actually builds the shape out of what would be there or what it should look like. And then to explain this picture, I gave you the 43 foot tall, because one of the walls is still standing, the, so you can still see one of them. Remember on the north side, there's a part of the wall that didn't go down. So that's been dug up right here. And you can see that there's this 14 foot wall right here and then there'd be another wall above it. And these two guys are standing there so you get a sense of what it would look like if you approached the wall. And then in the next one, it kind of explains what straight up is all about. But this is what they found and then how we got there is in those pictures. So I'll send those around. In Brian Wood went in the 1990s and right now there's another group that's there. They carefully documented everything they found which is kind of important because when the Palestinians took over this territory, they buried parts of what had been dug up. So they went in with bulldozers and they buried everything to cover it up because they didn't want this to be unpacked. So these original architectural digs are really kind of cool and we're starting to redig some of these things now. Um, first of all, the fell down flat. How does this happen? When you have a retaining wall and it's still in place, the walls don't tip they fall out, they slide out. And what they do is they create that triangular space that's under the wall. So if I've got a wall with housing and dirt and then another wall up here, when the walls come out they actually, and then a trench down in front, they're actually gonna just come down like this. And what happens is the mass that made the wall fills the trench. And when on both walls they're doing that, the bulk that's there actually comes down like this and it made a giant ramp that went right up into the city. So this great engineering feat turned into a horrible defense mechanism if the walls fall down. It, was, it did the exact opposite of what it was supposed to do. It made them a nice ramp right up the hill. They could walk straight up into the city just like the wording says in the Hebrew. And that's exactly what they found. And I just love that you can, we can look at those archeological papers and see that. So, oh, it says to pass out the photos now. I had a note here saying pass out photos. That's charming. Thanks, past Sean, I appreciate that. Uh, all of it was made of mud brick. The cool part about mud brick is it's clay or pottery. So it was all still there when they dug it up in the early 1900s. It, just like you find pottery in archeology, span they actually found the mass of this wall in the dig. And they found it all around the city except for one portion of the wall had not collapsed, which was the northern side of the tell. There was a big section of the wall that hadn't collapsed. So either Rahab's house was huge or God gave a lot of grace around her house on either side. But there was actual housing units on the north side that they dug up, that's since been buried. Um, but they found like areas where there was a foundational wall around neighborhoods of houses between the two. 
in those rooms, I think this is interesting. They found, this is the second major, the first thing is the walls themselves are an archeological piece of evidence. The second thing is in the digs, they found in these houses jars full of grain, which means a couple things to archeologists. If the jars are full, that means they haven't eaten them throughout the year, which means you're in the spring because they would harvest the spring grain at this time. And those jars would be full right after a spring harvest. We remember from earlier when they crossed the Jordan, it said that it was rushing or because it was in the spring season which gives validity to what they're finding archeologically too, is that the Bible says it was the spring and then lo, it, they find these full vats of grain. And when you find full vats of vein, it also says a few things about the destruction of the city. It says that it was not a long siege because they didn't eat the food. The food was still there and the, the vats were full. So if they had a long siege, some sort of prolonged uh, siege of Jericho, the food would be gone. Here's the other thing. If people ran in a rush, they would take their grain. So we only found, when they dug this up, they found grain in certain houses, but not in others. Some people took their grain with them when they left. In other words, we know that people left. Other people, the grain was full, and the stuff on the upper level, the king's level, the rich people's level, they found a ton of this stuff. So the people at the top upper part of the city stuck around. The, the poor and the wall buffer zone people took off in large part. Um, so we know a few things. We know it was the spring from the grain. We know that they didn't leave. And we know that they weren't in a siege long enough to eat up their foodstuffs, which is all matching with what the Bible says. The only plausitive, plausible narrative for the fall of Jericho is exactly what the Bible presents as what happened. Because if they fell to a long siege, the food would be gone. If they all just ran and took off, the food would be gone. If it wasn't the spring season, the food would not be, it would be eaten through throughout the year. So we see this narrative in the Bible actually being there. The inhabitants thought they were going to win. Because here's the other thing. If you know you're going to lose, you destroy the food. You don't leave it there. The people inside the city didn't have time to destroy or take the food stocks. Something happened that was quick and sudden that made it so that those grain stocks were still full. So that's the second major piece of archaeological evidence. It was a short siege. Most of the inhabitants had left, but the ones that stayed didn't bother to destroy the grain stores, and the city was utterly destroyed. Verse 22. I'm gonna Before I give you the other two, I'm going to read the verses that, that really affirm what's being said here. But Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. And, and a lot of people believe the all there isn't her stuff. It's all the other people that came into her house. There's an implication there that it's everyone who came in with Rahab got taken out and saved. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. So this is the moment to celebrate. This isn't, we don't get graphic depictions of people dying here. The whole point of the story is that Rahab gets saved. Remember that Rahab's who we started the story with in Joshua 1. Where we began with Rahab, and now we're ending with Rahab. It's marked by the red cord, Joshua 2. And they see the red cord. They, they know where to go to get it. And they had instructions before the walls came down. So this isn't in chronological order, because he gives this instruction earlier. So when the walls do come down, they know exactly what to do. 
And all that she has, again, she's, they're bringing all those people out and, and her things. They brought all her relevance, relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. In other words, they just became Israelites. They just brought them into the camp. And they are, they're on the outside because the, the middle of it is filled with the tribes of Israel. So now there's these other people that aren't a tribe, but they're still traveling with Israel and they're part of Israel. Uh, so this is a good step. She gets a place of safety. She has some things to learn to be with God's people. She doesn't know their ways, their culture. She doesn't know how to worship. She doesn't know about Sabbath. She doesn't know about Passover. She doesn't know anything. But that doesn't matter. She still gets to come be with God's people because the rule isn't as important as the person and her salvation. So far less important than Rahab is archaeology lesson number three. Lesson number three is there's, there's that portion of the wall that doesn't fall. It was found by the Germans in 1907. They were doing an archaeological dig. They were finding all these walls that had fallen, and then they find a section that was intact, which makes it so that we know how the walls were built, what they looked like, and we can get that artistic re rendering. The houses that were built inside this, the wall uh, were found by Selen and Watzinger in 1973 is when they dug all those houses up. So if you want to dig into that, you can. Um, the direction on the north side is not something we know from the Bible. It's something we know from archaeology. But when you look out the north side, remember Rahab told them to run away from the city in Joshua 2, verse 15? And she said, run toward the mountain. That's all we know. And if you go north of Jericho, it rises into a mountain range. The rest of the place, it's kind of the plains of Jericho. So the north side is then the correct side if you want to run towards a mountain and not run in front of the city. A direct path away from the city goes towards the mountain. And it's also up where the waters would have flooded because that's up where the city of Adam is. It's kind of the river cuts down through those mountains. So it's in the right direction, and we have it in there. And that those mountains would have been about a five-mile hike for the two spies to get up into those. And then this is what's cool about those particular mountains. Those mountains... I know I'm getting a little bit off here, but they are. Um, the description is a jagged range of white limestone mountains of Judea. They rise to the north of the city, are honeycombed with caverns. The same which in later ages are afforded to shelter hermits who took up their abode in these areas. It is the belief that this is the location of where Jesus went for his 40 days of temptation. Fun thing about Israel is it's small. So almost every one of these locations have a New Testament parallel that go with them. Um, it is called the Quarantania as a mountain range, and it's where we get the root word for quarantine. It's where you go to be set aside or consecrated and to get away from it all. So as we go through the Bible and we hit these hermits that are up in the mountains, this is the mountains they're talking about. And those honeycombs that are in there, you could live forever and not be found hiding out in those honeycombs. So they are all these connected little tunnels that go through the mountains. I want to go there, but they don't do tours. I think that'd be super fun. But the spies could have easily gone into those honeycombed tunnels and caves and not been discovered or found by the Canaanites. It would have been impossible to find them back in there. Um, last but not least, there is a warning to those in Jerusalem at the end of days when they see the end times coming. They're supposed to run to the mountains. So there's some belief when you look at kind of end time stuff that these mountains will be relevant once again in the rapture, revel, you know, the kind of the tribulation period. And this will be a place that people run to hide from the government. So 
That's point number three. The wall is not only still standing in that northern part, it's also pointing in the right direction to confirm the Bible. So then you get to verse 24. But, so I like that Rahab saved and then the word but in verse 24. Uh, but they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron, which they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Notice that the Bible says the city was burned, not just people or idols, but the whole city. They burn all of it. Uh, there should be then in the archaeology, we should see a fire layer, yes? Anything that was wood, we should find ash. And sure enough, as they dig this up, and that's Ken, most of Kenyon's research, she found the wall thing, but she also found that throughout the dig site, whenever they took, you know, they put a rod down in the dirt and they pull it up and they can see the layers, wherever she went in the tell, she found about a three-foot layer of ash anywhere she went at the same, so there's kind of a universal layer of ash at Tel Jericho. There is a full destruction layer. This is when they debate about Jericho his, historically. They don't, they'll debate about when the fire happened and they'll try to make it so it's not when the Bible says it happened. Well, Jericho was fully destroyed, but it was destroyed a thousand years after the Bible says, which they don't know. They're just making their date guesses when they do that. Um, but the fact that it was destroyed is not contested at all. It was destroyed, and it was destroyed by fire, and there's clear evidence of con uh, conquest, and there's clear evidence that the city was not inhabited after that conquest, which we'll get to in a couple verses. There's, two, oh, I'm sorry, not three feet, it's two feet of ash that Kenyon records in 1981. Most of the, wall, the room's walls collapsed and then burnt, except for the northern side of the wall. The houses burnt and then collapsed. So when they find the layers, it's flipped. So Rahab got out of her house and they still burned it all down, everything that was in there. But everything else was collapsed before it was burnt in that outer ring area when they did the excavations. So the walls fell, the top wall fell and destroyed all the houses that were down here and then it was all burnt up. Just cool stuff. All right, last. Um, usually something that they find, this is I guess number five, it's what they didn't find in Jericho. When you go through Jericho, and when you go through any tell, you find things that are like human living stuff. You'll find the kids' toys, because they lose them. So in most archaeological digs, you'll find kids' toys. You'll find broken pottery, because you sweep it up and you throw it under the floorboards, or you throw it away, and the pottery doesn't decay. It stays there. So you'll find broken pottery. You will find gold coins, because we lose coins in our couch cushions. And we have for all of history. So you'll always find coins when you do archaeological digs. One thing that was interesting in Jericho, uh, to my knowledge and anything I kind of looked over and read through this week, they have yet to unearth coins or any metal object from Jericho, which the Bible says that's exactly what happened, and they haven't dug those up. So we don't know what a Jerichoian coin looks like. We haven't found any statues. We haven't found any baubles or kids' toys. They haven't found anything other than the pottery and the grain um, in this whole area. We, they didn't even find household goods. What they found was a two-foot thick layer of ash. The whole thing was burnt and everything in it. So metal would have endured that fire, and we don't find metal. It's exactly what the Bible says. So the walls fell out. There were burnt grain reserves. The north wall was still tall, two-foot fire layer, no cash. That's what they find in Jericho. It perfectly fits this. Verse 25. And Joshua spared Rahab, the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had, 
So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out to Jericho. One thing quick to notice, first, it's almost like it's repeating itself, but it, it changes a little bit because this is like the summary of the story. It's the moral of the story. And she's with us to this day. Like the whole thing was the origin of Rahab's story, not the fall of Jericho's story. Isn't it interesting how that's changed? The whole thing was about Rahab. And notice here that she dwells in Israel to this day. And the last verse we saw, she was put outside the city. So from the time of the writing, from when it happened, she moved from outside the city to inside the city. It's the same thing that happened with Lot, right? Initially, he was away from Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he put his house right outside the city. And the next thing you know, he's inside the city. And then he's a leader amongst the people in the city. Like it went the wrong direction. But for Rahab, the same thing happens. She goes outside the camp. And now in verse 25, she's in Israel. And she, it's changed a little bit. So she dwells in Israel. She becomes an Israelite. She becomes the mother of Boaz, who eventually marries Ruth. Uh, and then you stop for a second. This is one of those princess bride moments for me. It's like the, wait, 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 wait. And it leaves the story. And it's the kid in the bed with his grandpa. And the grandpa's telling this story. And it's, the kid just kind of goes, wait a second. This last sentence should say something like, and Joshua obeyed the Lord and conquered the nasty city of Jericho and God's fulfillment of the promised land happened now. This is the narrative of the Bible. God's people conquer. Isn't that what it should say at the end of this? Like when you're in Sunday school, isn't that how the lesson ends? But when you read the Bible, that's not what it says. It says, and Joshua spared Rahab, the harlot, the father, and her fathers also know that she had. So she dwells in the city to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She's the one person who sided with Israel and she was saved. That's the moral of the story. So why is Rahab the moral of this story? Why is she so important and prominent for this, for this beginning of the history, right? This isn't the Pentateuch. So in chapter two, it starts with her, and now this ends with her. We got tons of images of salvation, crossing rivers, consecrating for God, lots of images of the Christian walk and how to follow the Lord, how to do battle with the Lord. We've had all that in the last six chapters, but Rahab, it all comes back to Rahab. So one thing to note is Joshua had no idea why Rahab was so important. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't, it would be generations later when she becomes important. Joshua had no reason to think she's significantly important to the Bible and the construct of the Bible. He's just writing the book of Joshua. It's just recording what happened. But what happened is God told him how important she was. That's why she's the center of the story in the writing is God gave him some relevance and importance and said, I want you to save Rahab. Make sure you do that. So Joshua couldn't know that. All he's doing is being faithful by writing it. To Joshua's credit, he's led by the Holy Spirit. He writes it the way he's told to write it. It's a strong, significant thing. Um, what's more important here is the mercy that's shown, not the execution that happened. Again, Richard Dawkins just, Dawkins just doesn't know what he's talking about. What's important here is not that they had to kill some Canaanites. What's important here is that Rahab the Canaanite got saved. That's the big deal. Mercy is greater than sacrifice, for the Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice. It's this key principle. It's not about who they killed. It's about who they saved. Isn't that the narrative of the Bible that we know? Isn't that the narrative of Jesus? It's not about who gets killed. It's about who gets saved. Genesis 16, 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, 
have I also here seen him who sees me? Right? That idea that the whole battle saved Rahab is that God saw Rahab. He loves her. She's just some harlot in a Canaanite city. And the God of the universe zooms in on her and makes her a prominent character in his holy word that's here as a testimony to us in 2021. Yeah, that's our God. It's that important to him. It's that big of a deal. God takes territory. Yeah, 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 that's important. But God saves Rahab. That's a big deal. I'm emphasizing this point because it's a huge point. Um, Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust him. This is a big deal. I was just talking last night with the Hulks about like this idea of the end times and is it going to be pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib? And You may feel very strongly about your tribs, but at the end of the day, the Lord is good, and he knows those who trust him. He knows. What Am I going to get saved? Does the Lord know me? If you're even asking that question, he's, he knows you're asking that question. He knows you care about him and that you want to be saved by him. The people who don't want to be saved with him have to, it's like you got to fight to go to hell because he's doing everything he can do to bring you into the kingdom. He made it so easy, we don't even have to consecrate or, or, or circumcise ourselves anymore. We just circumcise our heart with a prayer. It's so easy. To this day is an internal reference that gives historicity to any piece of literature. So when Joshua says, and we see this in the Bible a lot, to this day, she still lives in Israel. He's asking his writers to go, don't trust my word for it. Go talk to Rahab. She was there. So when he's writing this book, that dates the book within a generation of when it happened. And it has first person witnesses being called on to testify to the truthfulness of the book. So if Rahab would be like, nah, that's not how it happened, the Jews wouldn't have given validity to this book and kept it. It's because he could test it and make that kind of claim. So I just like that because leadership-wise, don't take my word for it. Read the book yourself. Go talk to the people who have been there. Talk to veterans in the faith and know what that looks like. And I love the fact that she eclipses the conquering of Jericho, which in the Bible so far, moving into the Holy Land is the most important narrative of the Bible. I mean, everything's pointed to the people of God forming through Exodus and then moving to the Holy Land. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and now Joshua. It's all about that in the narrative of the Bible. But the fact that she eclipses that and becomes the center of the story says that God's got a spiritual battle he's fighting that's way more important than the physical ones. Again, we keep coming across that theme. God has a plan for a saving Messiah that goes all the way back to Genesis 1. So the coming into the Holy Land starts with Exodus and comes forward as a plot line. But there's a bigger plot line here, and that is the curse of Adam and Eve is going to be conquered by a saving uh, God Messiah that's going to counteract that curse of sin. So Rahab is a very important part of that narrative and not a very important part of Joshua's narrative, yet he puts him there and makes her prominent. I just think that's great. And here's why. Rahab, Rahab, you probably already knew this, becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus. So for no reason that Joshua is aware of, he highlights this woman who's going to be part of the genealogy of Jesus, and he makes her prominent. So that's a huge plot line. She's going to marry into Israel, uh, and and he and this is going to be this idea that she's worth saving becomes one of Jesus's best teachings that he ever makes. And you know this teaching, you've heard it. This idea that one person is worth saving is actually part of Jesus's genealogy. It's a story he would have been told when he was a kid. 
because it would have been really important to that family. In my family, there's the story of when they came out with the ox wagon to the Middle West. At every turn in the road, they would pray and let the oxen tell them which way to go. And that's how they landed in Wyndham, Minnesota. And I'm thinking, you had really dumb oxen. But it's a family story. So you tell those stories. Jesus would have been growing up hearing about, now notice how Rahab gets highlighted in Joshua. See how she gets the attention? That's because she's our ancestor. And, and he would have grown up doing that. So this is a story Jesus tells in Luke 15. I know I'll get to the last two verses. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the wilderness? I like how he mentions the wilderness even. And, af and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it and he lays it on its shoulders rejoicing and he comes home and he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me for I've found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven for over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who don't need to repent. Isn't that awesome? There's, it's so much more important that they saved Rahab than it is that they had to kill these, these rebels. The rebels are like irrelevant. They, they get mentioned with the donkey and the oxen. But Rahab gets a position of prominence. She's everything. That kind of love is the wild, untamed, makes no sense to human brains, reckless love of God. It's reckless because we don't understand the point of it. But it makes all the sense in the world to God because he is that kind of God. His love is not making sense to humans. His grace goes way beyond what we can do. And I'm not saying God is reckless. I'm saying his love looks reckless. Make sense? Anyways. God's extremely careful and deliberate because he's orchestrated all of this in an omnipotent kind of way. Our response to the story of Rahab should be to lift our praise to God. It should be to say that's the kind of God we serve. Praise the Lord we serve that kind of God because he saved me too. He went out of his way to get my heart and at some point, God went through that trouble to get you, too. There's no accidents in that. There's no accident in Rahab getting saved. It was intentional. Yeshua says, save her and everybody with her. And our Jesus does the same thing. He will stand in front of us at the day of judgment and say, uh-uh, I get Zach, and I get Sherry, and I get Kate. I want these people. They're my people. And anybody who is with them comes with them, too that's the God we serve. Same God in the Old Testament. Jesus teaches the principle directly in Matthew 9.13. You're going to flip there, aren't you? Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but I come to call sinners to repentance. Is that worth flipping to it? Yeah, okay, so this is the first battle of the Holy Land. It's for the Hebrews, but it's also the first sinner that gets saved in the whole Bible. So I hope that puts the story of Rahab over the story of Jericho in your head. It should. She's the first sinner. She's come round. I like the idea that God will rip down walls to save one person. Like he'll take a whole city out just to get one. And it's that big of a deal to him. We saw the same principle with Abraham when he's like, if there's even one good person in the city, would you save it? God's like, yeah, no problem. I'll do that. God will go out of the way for that sinner. And here's the epilogue, verse 26. Um, 
and this is getting to be typical in the Bible, we end stories with prophecy of what's going to happen next. So we get a little bit of prophecy. Moses ended that way. Jacob ended that way. And now Joshua's going to end this first conquering this way. Then Joshua charged them at the time saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. They're rising up against God is what that implies. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up his gates. Archaeological records shows a mass period of not populating in this city. Otherwise, once it was rebuilt, Jericho is now the oldest living city on the planet. So it has been inhabited continuously more than any other city on the planet. At least that's what it claims. I don't know if it's been to China and they've figured that out or not, but that's the claim. Uh, this prophecy in verse 26 gets fulfilled, and you probably have a cross-reference in your Bible for 1 Kings 16, verse 34, in which says his days, heel built Bethel, heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abraham, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his Joshua son, Anun. In other words, the guy who built the city lost two of his sons as the, the city was being built in fulfillment of what Joshua says right here. Verse 27, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread through all the country. I like that because it's another montage scene. It's a good transition before we get to chapter 27. But in a, in a good movie, like fame spreading through the country is all those little shots of people whispering to each other in the marketplace. A kid comes home and tells his parents. And again, you can't hear it because the music's just playing. But the word spreads. And there's just this idea of this happening. Uh, Jehovah Yeshua is so the Lord was with Joshua is only four words. Is the all of verse 27 is only four Hebrew words. Jehovah, Yeshua, Soma, Ares. So it, it we put a lot more English words in there, but it's basically Jehovah and Yeshua is almost in the Hebrew like a first and last name. Jehovah Yeshua. Um, and then the news is the Soma, and Ares was all over or everywhere, or the earth. So when God made the heavens and the earth, they used the word Eris. So Jehovah Yeshua, the word of God, gets out all over the planet. And it spreads everywhere in verse 27. Jehovah Yeshua, news all over the place. Or some translate, some of your Bibles might have was noised. Do any of you have that in your translations? Um, his fame was noised throughout the country. Because that last, that soma there uh, is this idea of report or rumor or something going out. In other words, the people are talking now. Like it's not just this city that happened. Everybody around knows what's going on. And that's an indication as we move forward, all the smart Canaanites got the heck out because the news spread. This is what happens if you stick around and you want to fight against them. So it's all over the place. Joshua's fame uh, goes out then. And it goes out about the Jordan. It goes out about Jericho, all these things God did. Joshua's only done two things so far. God's done everything so far. So to take note of, because if I want to know, like, as a human, what do I get to do? There's only two things Joshua's done. He built a monument. He remembered what God had done in Joshua 4.9. And then in, jo in this verse 25 of this chapter, he specifically reminded his soldiers to save Rahab. Remembering what God's done, saving the lost and find, going out and finding them. So you get these kind of images of, okay, well, that's the two things that actually the human did in this story. 
So Joshua's fame goes out as a conqueror right alongside the name of God. And the name of God goes first. It's Jehovah Yeshua. And so I just, this image of, of God being the savior and the merciful one, because rumor would have got out that Rahab got saved too. So the rumor isn't just that they're conquering cities, it's that they're conquering cities and they're saving those people that want to come back to Jehovah. The name of God is getting out and spreading. I actually think that's kind of what's happening because all this COVID stuff, the attention's gone on to like Dr. Fauci and the attention's gone on to what's going on with the church. Have you noticed that? Those are the two major news narratives. And what's going on with the church is really exciting. Baptisms, people coming back to the kingdom, people getting saved. The word of God is getting out in times of tribulation. And that's what happens. So here's this thing, the Canaanites, it's like the word's going around. And I don't know, I just like the montage scene because I can see it happening in my head. Jesus gets fame all over in the exact same kind of way. He starts to do things. He shows that he's righteous to save. And in Isaiah it says, Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments of Bovra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness is mighty to save. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who's he talking about? Is he reflecting on Joshua? Or is he predicting the Messiah? And it, it, it's almost like Isaiah is awesome because if you haven't read like Isaiah 53, and if you don't see Jesus in that, there's something wrong with you. Um, but you, you just see this Isaiah giving this kind of prophecy and you don't know quite who he's talking about. But when Jesus comes, word goes out about Jesus the same way. He starts to do those first couple of miracles. He starts to forgive sins and word just goes out. There's a guy named Jesus. He's talking. Um, the only thing is with God, when he gets the glory, it's not hubris and it's not arrogance. It's truth. So he's worthy of our praise. So when his glory spreads, that's awesome. When our glory spreads, get ready for the fall. When people, when we get a million hits on our YouTube channel, we're about to go down. When God gets attention through our YouTube channel, then the word gets out about God. It's kind of cool. So lessons so far in a walk of faith in the book of Joshua. Number one, God is the God who saves. Number two, faithfulness and obedience get results. And that's not flashy. Number three, courage is doing what God says in the presence of obvious danger, not the absence of fear. Endurance is the God's plan has always been revealed, but to keep taking your steps every day until you see the end of the God's plan, that's endurance. And you just keep going. You get up in the morning, get up early in the morning and keep doing it. And number five, there is no wall that stops God. That lesson is still here. So every one of you that heard that in your Sunday school, that lesson is still clearly here. God doesn't care about the walls. And in God's eyes, they can go away. So the response to that is that we should praise the Lord and pray. And then you flash forward into the future. These lessons in Joshua play into the history of Israel very well. This sticks in their heart as part of their national identity. Because their national identity was former slaves, but now they're conquerors. They're more than conquerors. They melt hearts. They dissipate people before even fighting them. They won this battle without an actual physical battle. So they're going to face a lot bigger threats in the future. I just want to give you one of them, which I think is cool. One of the kings, that one of the good kings is King Asa. You guys have heard about King Asa? So he gets up and there's an Ethiopian army that comes out against them. And in 2 Chronicles 14, verse 9, then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Merishah. 
Asa, this Israeli king, goes out against them and they set up their troops in the battle array in the valley of Zephthana at Marisha. And Asa cries out to the Lord his God and says, Lord, it's nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power, help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are God. Do not let man prevail against you. Fame is only worth spreading if it's God's fame. And with Jesus, we do the same thing. We just go, how can I serve God? With other humans, it's what side are you on? If we know it's God we're talking to, it's how do I serve? Remember when you met the commander of the army of the Lord? And this idea that the King Asa does the same thing. Here's this million-man Ethiopian army. And he just says, Lord, it's nothing to you. You can deal with this in a second. So I'm either going to die today or be embarrassed because somebody got angry and, and yelled at me about my Jesus-loving stuff. Or you're going to do a great victory and somebody's heart is going to melt and they're going to come into the kingdom. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noised throughout the country is the end of this chapter. And I just love that idea that that's how we do things. That's the, the beginning of this historical narratives of the Bible is this story of Rahab around the city of Jericho going down and what God's going to do through the rest of Israel's history. So, And I hope the visual aids were very helpful tonight. Let's pray. God, we love you and we approach you, Lord, with great reverence that you are a mighty God far beyond our recognition, far beyond anything we can imagine. Lord, you have victories that you've already won for us that we haven't even seen yet. Lord, we get trials, we get temptations, we get issues in our life, Lord, and they can fall like the walls of Jericho, but our, our focus shouldn't necessarily be on the fights because you've already won those. Our focus should be on who you're going to save through the process, whose lives are being touched as we go through those trials. Lord, help us to just daily get up and walk with you, to serve you, to take that time with you, Lord, to put your word out in front. Um, Lord, some of us are still struggling to get that habit of the word. Um, help this to be an encouragement for us to do that, to get that time together. Lord, help us to pray together. Those that we live with, Lord, help us to find that time to, to be in prayer with each other and for each other. Lord, when we shout, help it to never be at people. Help us to always shout to the Lord and shout to you and give you our praise and our honor. Uh, Lord, help us to worship you with our hearts and our minds and our souls. Lord, we thank you for Joshua, his faithfulness as a leader, that he got up early and he served you. And Lord, he humbly carries your name. And he does it uh, in such a way, Lord, that you get the honor and you get the glory and your fame spreads. So, Lord, we love you. We lift you up. We praise you. Help us to walk this week um, as you would have us walk so that we can just see those walls come down, Lord. And more importantly, that we can see the lost be saved, the one found. Uh, and, Lord, we can search through the ruins for those things that are precious and we can consecrate them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.